Right, hello and welcome back to Rupture Radio. This week I interviewed James O'Toole about his new book, Class War Trade Unionism, as well as the general approach of socialists when organising labour struggles. Before I go to that interview, I want to say again that issue 7 of Rupture Magazine is still for sale and can be found in the episode description. Okay, I'll switch over now. I'm delighted to be joined on the line by socialist activist and author, uh, James O'Toole. Welcome, James. Yeah, thanks very much for having us on. No problem. We're here to discuss your latest book, The Return of Class War Trade Unionism. So first off, well done on the book. I think it's great. It's a great uh, contribution to the ongoing discussion around tactics for getting workers active. So just to begin with, what caused you to write the book and what type of intervention were you looking to make with regards to the debates in the union movement about overcoming barriers to worker militancy and mobilisation? Yeah, I, th- I think there was a, two things that really... Uh, kind of incentivized me to to write the book. I think the first thing was after the experience of the Debenhams dispute, you know, where we saw predominantly women walkers dragged off picket lines in the middle of the night by the Gardaí, you know, the riot squad turned up at Henry Street and in Limerick, you know, to help Debenhams take the stock out, which was basically the theft of those workers' redundancy. And, you know, there was a real uh, anger amongst the workers, not only at the state and not only at the company, but also there was a lot of frustration with the union because, you know, uh, a lot of the workers on the picket line felt that their union mandate hadn't done enough to assist them, that there could have been more support from the union, that there could have been more strategic discussion. discussion. And there was a real deficit there uh, when you talk to the workers, you know, in terms of the strike not living up to the kind of their expectation of the struggle that they wanted to deliver. And there was a kind of a gap between uh, how even the unions with a left-wing reputation like Mandate or Unite, you know, as opposed to, say, SIPTO or Impact, which, you know, are unions with a more conservative reputation. But even the left-wing unions, when it came down to a, uh, a workers' dispute or a strike, you know, kind of left the workers wanting far more from the union than they got. So that was one thing that really, it really struck me that, you know, some of the lessons of that strike and previous strikes I've had an experience of, you know, uh, assisting with and supporting that they needed those lessons needed to be written down for other activists. So people weren't starting from scratch on the picket line. So people were made aware of those lessons. And then the other thing was the uh, oncoming cost of living crisis. When I started writing the book last year, there was already hints that there was going to be, you know, a rising inflation and, you know, that there was going to be some kind of economic crisis uh, after COVID, you know, whether that was going to be the imposition of the COVID bill, you know, the the millions that they'd spent in terms of propping up businesses and stuff like that having to be paid by working class people, or the fact that supply chain issues and the disruptions that COVID had caused to the economy would cause uh, rising inflation and that that would, again, you know, cause an erosion of uh, the incomes of working class people. So from both those points of view, you know, the fact that there was the Debenham strike went on during the lockdown. And then this time last year, we kind of got the first indications that there was going to be a cost of living crisis. I thought to myself, you know, that, you know, whether it's the strikes of the 1960s or, you know, how did the Industrial Relations Act come about or, um, you know, strikes of recent years from the Thomas Cook's occupation to the Debenham strike, from the Green Isle strike to the MTL dock strike, you know, uh, as a socialist activist, you end up with uh, the experience of, you know, standing on a lot of picket lines, talking to a lot of workers and 
there's a lot of kind of experience there to be kind of codified. So I didn't really want to write a theoretical book about strikes. I wanted to kind of summarize the uh, experience of workers in struggle so that other workers could read it and not have to start from scratch. So in reality, you know, I was writing the book with uh, a particular audience in mind, which is, you know, workers who might find themselves on strike and would be able to use the book almost like a handbook. You know, if you read the book, you kind of know where things are at in the Irish trade union movement and kind of what what are the best methods to try and uh, drive a a grassroots kind of strategy forward uh, if you end up on strike. Yeah, and I think it's a good intervention in, in that regard. Something you touched on there is the, like often when we engage with workers, there's some disappointment in the unions or like an expectation of a different conception of what a strike is meant to be or or how they're meant to be backed up by the unions. And I think that's because people are like aware of the history of labor militancy in Ireland. And that's something you touch on uh, in the book from, say, like the heady days of Larkin and Connolly right up to the 60s. And then eventually that being the turning point of the undermining of the labor movement in Ireland. So the question then is like, how did we end up where we are today with some weaker representation for workers in the unions? Uh, Yeah, I think that you've kind of touched on something of the answer to that in that I mean, there's there's one answer really that I wanted to challenge, which was that there's some kind of conservative culture in Irish workers or, you know, you often find it in communities like mine. You know, I grew up in Fatima Mansions flats and then moved up to Crumlin. You get a kind of a, ah, here, sure, you know, that's just the way things are. And sure, the Irish never fight, even though, you know, our country is littered with ruined castles and centuries of rebel- crushed rebellions, you know. You know, uh, outside of Ireland, the Irish are seen as very militant and inside of Ireland, Sometimes people are so oppressed that we kind of talk ourselves down a bit. So by looking at the strikes of the 1960s, I wanted to show that actually the maintenance workers, for example, at the end of the 60s, you know, with flying pickets, you know, they shut down uh, major industries. Uh, The head of the uh, equivalent of IBEC back then, the Federation of the Employers uh, in the 1960s was a guy called Arthur uh, Rice, who was the CEO of Jacobs, and he was really anti-union. And uh, he said, you know, that the 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 uh, bosses shouldn't back down to this militancy. And the strike uh, in reports that were published after the strike, they said the reason the strike was so militant is that control of the strike passed to the strike committees and to the grassroots of the unions. Uh, and so they drove this strike forward. The maintenance workers who were like, you know, people that maintain machines uh, in both public and private Uh, companies you know anywhere that has machinery a maintenance worker needs to fix and maintain the machine so they had immense power to shut industry down Um, and these maintenance workers with those militant tactics won 22 percent pay rises you know in in an era of cost of living crisis 22 percent pay pay rises is very attractive but you know uh, so the, the the myth that you know social partnership and the kind of compliant unions that we have today that that was somehow the result of Irish workers not being militant is uh, is a myth. In fact, it was the fact that people were so militant uh, and that picket lines were so respected that three groups of people sat down and wanted to undermine that situation. One was obviously the bosses. The bosses, you know, didn't want to put up with a situation where workers were, you know, hopscotching over each other in terms of pay claims. You know, one group of workers gets a pay claim and another group of workers goes, well, we should imitate them and go on strike. The uh, employers wanted some kind of partnership arrangement or wage agreements to to rationalise industrial relations and to basically uh, keep workers from 
uh, this you know high level of uh, militancy and kind of sectoral uh, militancy where workers would compete with other groups of workers to get uh, wage rises and things like that. Uh, then the government obviously wanted to assist the bosses uh, in uh, um, you know calming the working class down and chaining them up. Uh, but also interestingly, um, the Congress of Trade Unions called a special meeting in 1971-72. Uh, they had special conferences where they discussed the uh, you know the, the the huge militancy at the end of the 1960s, and they wanted more rational uh, wage agreements and more what, what they would term more rational ways of uh, dealing with you know uh, wage claims and things like that. So those three groups of people uh, wanted to chain workers up and have you know, what, what would become, you know, first of all, national wage agreements and then evolving into social partnership. And uh, it's interesting that the, uh, the working class in Ireland was so militant that they couldn't immediately impose, uh, you know, the Industrial Relations Act and social partnership. And I would argue that those are two sides of the same coin, that social partnership where the unions sit around the table with the bosses rather than seeing the bosses as a class enemy, uh, and the Industrial Relations Act, which threatens, uh, you know, workers with huge punitive fines. You know, it's very uh, uh, punitive anti-union legislation, very similar to Margaret Thatcher's, you know, uh, laws that she brought in to, to, to deal with the miners' strike. That, that the, the Industrial Relations Act and partnership are two sides of the, the same coin. But it's interesting that it took them until 1990 to kind of get that together. And uh, they couldn't immediately impose it in the wake of the 60s, although they, they desired to, because workers were just so militant. I mean, right up until the late 70s, those factory occupations and strikes and things like that, uh, culminating in the big tax marches at the end of the 1970s, beginning of the 80s, it was only really after, you know, the economic uh, recessions of the late 70s, 80s, you know, decline in employment, weakening of the working class, and then the uh, defeat of the unions uh, in Britain you know, give our union leaders, you know, they were much more pessimistic than in the 1980s. And so there was a kind of a downturn in militancy. And that then gave the ruling class the opportunity to impose the Industrial Relations Act. And and what the union leaders got in return was they got their feet on into the, you know, under the table in the corridors of power. So they agreed with this uh, punitive legislation and this chaining up of the union movement uh, in return for access to the corridors of power. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's spot on. I think it's a good point in terms of this slow decaying of the union movement, the undermining of it by the government and a layer within the unions that were happy to accommodate themselves has really thrown back the struggle. Although recently we've seen inspiring strikes, as you mentioned, with the Debnams workers and we had Hovis in the last year and Tesco workers as well. So there has been kind of a, a reignition, but still those barriers remain. And the barrier you mentioned in terms of social partnership, why? not technically the official policy uh, in the modern day is effectively the approach or ideology driving much of the the labor bureaucracy or the bureaucracy in the unions which we would talk about and maybe you might touch on uh, what exactly that means and in relation to that is what are these problems facing the union movement you've mentioned social partnership there uh, and how can they be overcome how can we overcome these challenges in the next period yeah, and I think, like, first of all, like, convincing people that so social partnership has to be overcome, I think one of the most shocking indictments of social partnership is the, you know, what's called the wage share of the economy, which is this, this share of the economy going back to workers in, uh, in, in the form of wages. The wage share of the economy in Ireland in the 1970s was 75%. The wage share of the economy now is 30%. 
So the share of the economy going back to workers in the shape of wages uh, has collapsed from 75 to 30%. So, you know, far from social partnership being as the, the union leaders, a lot of the union leaders would pitch, you know, partnership and, and partnership-like agreements as being, you know, a smart way to, to handle industrial relations. And, you know, they Paul Sweeney, for example, the you know, he's an author that works, you know, for SIP, you know, has written books about the history of SIP2 and things like that. Like he would talk about now is the era of brains, whereas Larkin and Connolly was the time of brawn, as if, you know, uh, moving away from industrial muscle and strikes and protests to, you know, sitting, you know, around the table with the government. That's a very sophisticated strategy. But it's a very sophisticated strategy that has basically negotiated a retreat that the wage share of the economy going to workers has collapsed. And it's also led to a hollowing out of the union movement. So unionization rates uh, in the workforce have collapsed. You know, we're at about 24% of the workforce unionized, which is, you know, much, much lower than it was in the 70s and even in the, 19, the 1980s. Uh, and I think that, you know, social partnership kind of, as you said, you kind of touched on that, you know, the certain bureaucratic layers uh, in the unions who uh, they see themselves as mediating between the bosses and workers, you know, so they don't see themselves as part of the working class. Uh, you know, I was talking to a lad from one of the builder unions from uh, uh, Batu, and he was saying that, you know, one of the leaders of his union uh, turned around to him and said, well, you know what, when you're negotiating with CEOs and you're negotiating with very wealthy bosses, if you're not on the same income as them, they won't respect you. In other words, the bureaucracy's attitude is that you know, you don't win respect through industrial muscle, you don't win respect through protest, and you don't win respect through strikes or through shutting down production or, you know, hitting these people in their pocket and making them think twice about cutting your wages, you know, or, you know, actually using the leverage of being able to shut down production to make them increase wages and uh, lower their profits so that they take the hit from the cost of living crisis rather than workers taking the hit. Um, you know, the, the, the union leaders uh, see themselves as having to exist on a you know, a plane of income on the same, you know, they have to have parity with the CEOs because they sit down and negotiate with these people. So there's actually a, a, a material interest and they have an ideological interest in terms of seeing themselves as, you know, mediating between, you know, the capitalists or the bosses uh, and the working class. So they often vaccinate because if, if, if you think about, it, I think what's interesting about what, what, what's happening over in um, Britain where you're seeing the RMT, you know, uh, trade union, which is quite a left-wing union, but it's still got a bureaucracy. But I think that the Tories are playing such uh, a hardline position with the RMT that the RMT faces an actual existential crisis if it doesn't fight. So sometimes, actually, even though the bureaucracy are a layer that vacillates between workers and the bosses, sometimes the bureaucracy is forced to fight because the bosses uh, go too far. You know, sometimes the uh, bureaucracy is willing to make so many compromises that the bosses think they can get away with, you know, completely, uh, you know, uh, rolling over workers and, you know, uh, slashing their pay and conditions or whatever. Uh, and then the unions are forced to fight. So um, I, I think the best way to the best attitude you can have to that vacillating uh, bureaucracy, the fact that they're not quite workers, you know, sometimes they'll do, do deal with the boss, they'll undermine rank and file militancy to keep their feet under the in, under the table in the corridors of power. I think the best attitude to have to the bureaucracy is the uh, attitude expressed by uh, Willie Gallagher from the Clyde Shop Stewards Committee. Uh, you know, this is back in 19, 
2014 or whatever, there was like huge militancy on the docks uh, in, uh, you know, in the Clyde uh, in Scotland. And, uh, you know, Gallagher said, we'll fight alongside the bureaucracy when they fight in the interests of workers and we'll fight without them when they won't. Which then, I suppose, you know, begs the question, um, you know, if the bureaucracy fight grand, your union's fighting, so you fight alongside them. When the bureaucracy refuse to fight, what do you do then? Because then we need to have a conversation about, you know, how do we build up rank and file connection in the unions so that we can actually take the fight forward when the bureaucracy refuses to fight or when they do a deal that we don't agree with or when they actually actively try and undermine the fight. I think a crucial point that you mentioned there in order to re-establish that muscle that you touched on is establishing a rank and file layer. Part of the issue at the moment is that union density, union membership levels are very low. So I think there's a big challenge in getting people into their unions with the intention to fight, with the intention to flip the union uh, in the favour of the workers. Uh, And as we both know, disaffection, I think, is a big issue when it comes to participation in unions. So what would you say to those who argue that the unions are beyond saving or that there's too many issues and that we should instead seek to organise workers in either breakaway unions or alternative organisations to unions or even just responding to that general disaffection, as I mentioned? Yeah, there's a couple of issues to untangle there. And I think the first one is the, the, I mean, sometimes good people have a sense that, you know, you know, why don't we take the good people out of the conservative unions and go form a perfect union? And I think there's a kind of a a theoretical mistake they're making there because they're misunderstanding what, what the purpose of a union is. And I think if you're clear what the purpose of a union is, then you're clearer on what a socialist approach and socialist strategy in union should be. Uh, and first of all, from a socialist point of view, the purpose of a trade union is to get a good price for a worker as a commodity on the labour market. So a trade union doesn't question the fact that workers are bought and sold as commodities on a labour market under a capitalist system. So the purpose of a trade union is, you know, when the system's doing well, they'll try and negotiate a better deal for the worker because the value of your labour has gone up, which is actually not anti-system in a way no it's actually conforming to the you know ideology of the system because it's accepting that workers are treated as commodities and the value of that commodity goes up and down and then you know when the economy's not doing well the unions uh, will actually accept the logic that the value of labor has fallen so they should accept wage cuts so they very much conform to the uh, ideology of capitalism and they accept that workers are commodities so you know even a militant union and you, you've seen this like in the, in the uh, midst of the Egyptian revolution and other revolutions where militant unions are formed, they uh, develop a bureaucratic layer, you know, they have a lot, you know, they have militant rhetoric. And then in the course of negotiating, you know, with uh, the bosses uh, and the development of a bureaucracy to play that mediating role, they become like every other union eventually. So I think as socialists, I think we should be present in militant unions. We should be present in, you know, uh, the bigger, you know, more bureaucratic unions, because uh, we want to store up struggle wherever there's an audience of working class people, wherever workers are. We want to, you know, uh, talk about socialism and talk about socialist uh, strategy. And I think that that's part of the overcoming of people who are disillusioned with the unions is that you have to kind of be honest uh, about, your, you know, what you want them to do when they go back into the unions. So if you if you say to someone who's been burned by a union, you know, say they were on strike 10 years ago or something and they felt that the union didn't really 
live up to their expectations or the union didn't deliver and so they leave the union movement and you come along and say you, like you just say oh join a union everyone should join a union there's a cost of living crisis join a union they're going to go well, what's the point to join a union what are they going to do for me you know what can i get out of joining a union uh, and i don't think it's good enough to just say oh well you know unions can raise wages and you know because some of them are smarter disillusioned workers you know who've maybe had a, a you know or militants in the past and are a bit disillusioned with the unions because they've had experience with the unions they might know that the wage share of the economy has dropped from 75 percent to 30 percent they might know that partnership has overseen an erosion of workers rights and that basically the the union leaders haven't challenged neoliberalism they've just been involved in a negotiated retreat and so i think you have to be upfront about socialist politics i think you have to say well as socialists we want to develop a rank and file opposition within the unions. So we're not just saying join your union uh, and you know sit in a hollowed out bureaucratic machine, hoping that one day they'll fight. We're saying that if the union bureaucracy are organized to push the line of social partnership and compromise with the bosses, then there needs to be an opposition within the unions that's actively organized to push the line of uh, fight back. Uh, and I think, you know, you know, people might say, oh, Jesus, you know, it's it's very, very difficult to move some of these bureaucratic machines. But there are moments where, say, for example, uh, in the wake of the Irish ferries uh, uh, dispute, you know, where Irish ferries was trying to pay, you know, workers that weren't from Ireland, you know, lower wage rates and uh, use that to undermine all workers' wages. And the Irish ferries workers occupied some of the ships and then there was a mass, a mass protest of 100,000. And the anger was such that, you know, uh, you know, SIP2 had to move and call uh, a national day of action, which saw 100 and 120,000 people take to the streets. But the problem was that rank and file anger can force the bureaucracy to move. But because that rank and file anger was diffuse and wasn't cohesive, it wasn't focused in terms of grassroots organization that could, you know, push the bureaucracy in a repeated manner, in an ongoing manner, could force them to act in an ongoing way and in a sustained way uh, that the movement then petered out and there was deals done and stuff like that. But I think that it still gives you an example of, you know, there's, 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 there, there are those moments where rank and file anger in unions has been shown to be capable of lighting a fire under the bureaucracy and forcing action. But uh, spontaneous upsurges of anger aren't enough that actually you need to put organizational form on those spontaneous upsurges. They give you a window of opportunity to, to, to build some kind of organizational legacy and to strengthen rank and file opposition within the unions. And I think that that goes for every social movement. I think sometimes the left has a habit of tailing social movements. You know, we're, we're so desperate for struggle to happen you know, like the water charges movement or, you know, whatever movement comes along, that when these movements come along, you're very excited and, you know, there's a tendency to sometimes even accidentally, without realising, you just tail the movement. You just think, let's just go along with this tide. But we always now, I think, have to keep in the back of our heads, what organisational legacy are we leaving behind when this particular strike, this particular protest or this particular social movement ends? Because it's that organisational legacy. It's the strengthening of rank and file strength within the unions of connections between militant shop stewards of connections between socialists and workplaces it's those kind of connections that mean that we're not far starting from scratch in subsequent struggles 
You've touched on establishing not just a basic join a union approach, but something that takes the bigger picture in. And I guess that's the like class war element of your book. So finally, then, what can listeners do to help reestablish this idea and contribute to that rebuilding of, of a class war trade unionism? Yeah, well, I think, the, the, I mean, the first step, obviously, is to join a union. And then the, the second step is, you know, if you're joining a union that already has an uh, you know, a, a rank and file or grassroots group in it, like ASDI fight back, like TUI fight back. You know, there's uh, quite quite strong uh, traditions of militant uh, grassroots opposition in, in some of the teachers unions. But if there if there isn't, you know, an opposition group like that, I think that's the strength of being connected into a socialist organization or a, a party like People Before Profit is that it's a pool of activists where you're more likely to be able to link up with other people in, you know, whatever trade union you're in uh, and start to build up uh, that kind of uh, rank and file opposition. Because I think without grassroots activists in the unions being organized, as you said, you know, every strike uh, reveals lessons to people, but those lessons can be lost. I mean, you know, a, a nurse who's been burned by the bureaucracy you know, or being let down by whether it was Liam Doran, you know, Liam Doran when he was the head of the INMO or uh, Phil Nishay, you know, a lot of nurses, uh, you know, on the James's street, uh, the James's hospital picket line were very upset when the INMO uh, did a deal after the last strike, you know, they were expecting a lot more from the, from the dispute. And sometimes you can learn positive and negative lessons from a struggle. In other words, you can learn that the bureaucracy will betray you but that can make you demoralized and give up. Uh, whereas if you've got socialist politics and you learn that the bureaucracy you know, can betray you, you realize that you have to pass that lesson, pass that lesson on to other people in a way that actually uh, takes the union movement forward. And I suppose that's where the grassroots strategy comes in. But I think you know, socialist politics and linking up with a socialist organization, uh, I think is important in another sense, because you know, there's, a, there's a lot of people out there who you know there's a lot of good union militants out there there's a lot of shop stewards there's a you know you, you meet them when you go on a strike like the Devon strike and you talk to some of the women on the picket line and you know they they've been in the they were in the union for years and years and years and years and you know they always had a decent shop steward who'd go and you know ask the union what the wage rates were you know there's a lot of people like that around the country in workplaces but they kind of just get on with the business of you know, doing the nuts and bolts, bolts of trade unionism, but they don't really see themselves as needing to be in a political party. Uh, and I think that, you know, to go back where we started, which is the strikes of the 1960s, that the strike wave of the 1960s, a lot of workers like the rank and file maintenance workers, you know, were able to drive a strike forward and win 22% pay rises. One of the reasons that, that that wave of militancy collapsed was because of political representation. That that wave of militancy, the million and a half strike days lost by 1969 in Ireland, one of the most militant, you know, strike waves across Europe. And you're talking about the era of the, you know, May 68 struggles in France and stuff like that. So, you know, Ireland was really, you know, there was a really high level of struggle in Ireland, too, at that time. So one of the reasons that that militancy was dampened down was because the party that people looked to, you know, people are like, we're going to strike, we're going to fight, we're going to fight, we're going to fight. Uh, and then they're like, oh, we also need a political alternative because Fianna Fáil are trying to oppose, you know, this hugely militant movement and we need an alternative to the political establishment. But the alternative that came forward was the Labour Party, you know, with their timid politics uh, and, 
you know, Labour at the end of the 1960s were saying the 70s will be socialist and we'll never go into coalition with Fianna Gael. Five minutes later, they're in coalition with Fianna Gael. They're selling workers out. You know, the uh, coalition government between Labour and Fianna Gael from, uh, you know, uh, from uh, 73 to 77 was so bad and disappointed workers to such an extent that Fianna Fáil got in in 77 with the highest vote that, uh, you know, uh, any party had ever ever got. You know, they got an even higher vote than the Social Democrats were getting in Sweden, you know, at their height. So the point is that imagine if the strikes of the 1960s were... Uh, had had political representation that was actually trying to encourage the militancy. Imagine that instead of the Labour Party uh, capturing the support of that massive, you know, massive layer of militant workers, that it was actually socialists uh, who were able to articulate the demands of the workers on the platform of the doll, you know, help workers to link up with each other, help, uh, you know, grassroots workers in different industries link up to each other. That, that would have been a formidable, a formidable, really formidable movement that really could have put it up to the establishment in Ireland if the you know, economic wing of the movement in the workplaces, uh, the protest wing on the streets uh, and the, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the political wing of the movement in terms of political representation, if there had been you know, a, a, a real socialist organisation rather than the Labour Party, I think you could have taken both the uh, rank and file militancy but also the socialist movement forward. So I suppose that that, that really come, brings us back to where we started, which is that, you know, if you're a trade union militant, uh, you have to be a socialist. And if you're a socialist, you have to see yourself as being connected to the movement to build uh, a movement in our workplaces and in our trade unions. Yeah, and I think it's an important point that you touched on there. There is a general desire through a struggle for workers to turn the economic struggle into a broader political big picture struggle too and, and make demands of changing the system as a whole. And I think that's where socialist parties like People for Profit come into it in terms of acting as that vector for the, the struggle to move off just the economic field and link up the struggles in many different places. I think that's absolutely an important point. So finally then, James, I think this is a good summation of the book and I'd highly encourage people to pick up the book because there's much more uh, that we aren't able to touch on the short time that we have here where can listeners get the book and also where can listeners find more of your work and i'll be sure to link both in the episode description Uh, the the easiest way is if people just look up rebel telly and just go either on the rebel telly facebook page rebel telly on instagram or uh, rebel telly on twitter you know the the link for the book is is uh, easy enough to find on those uh, and it's easy enough to remember just Rebel Telly, so any of our platforms. Uh, and they can just direct message uh, Rebel Telly on, on any of those platforms and someone will get back to them uh, with the, the link either to buy copies or, you know, if they're in Dublin, I'm sure someone could just drop them off to them. Fantastic. And I'll also link uh, the podcast that you have going on because I'm sure any listeners who enjoy our podcast will also enjoy your own and I'd recommend both. So thanks a million for joining me, James, and uh, see you soon. Thanks a million. Cheers. Right, I'll uh, stop the recording. Now.